Welcome to the Our Safe Harbor Church podcast. Here you can listen to our Sunday sermon, Monday morning message, and midweek Bible study. We hope you will consider subscribing, sharing, leaving a review, but please be sure to check out our website at www.OurSafeHarbor.com to learn more about us and find ways to get involved. Our Safe Harbor Church, we are with you wherever you are. Hello, and welcome back to 2 Timothy chapter 3, starting at verse 10 today. And Paul's going to take this very personal letter to Timothy to yet another level of of just letting Timothy know some of his heart, but also getting Timothy ready for a very powerful charge to him that is coming later in this very short book. We're taking our time going through this because as Paul is talking to Timothy through these letters and and to Titus, he's actually talking to them about what it means to be a minister, an evangelist, a pastor, and what they need to take care of. And as we've already seen, the vast majority of things we fight about aren't even in here because they just weren't that important to the early Christians. It was how to live a life of love and faithfulness to Jesus while in the middle of a hostile culture. And I believe that we probably should be paying attention. Well, Paul's going to share here some of the struggles he's had, but he's going to share it for a particular reason. But won't, go, won't do that first. Let's have a look at First Timothy, I'm sorry, Second Timothy, chapter 3, verse 10. You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, sufferings, what kind of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, the persecutions I endured. Yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. Let's stop. The Lord rescued me from all of them. Does that mean he saved his life? Could be. Does it mean it kept him from harm? No. Paul bore in his body, as he put it, the marks of the Lord Jesus. He had scars. He'd been pummeled with rocks. He'd been beaten. This was a man whose joints would be hurting, who would have some nerve damage to parts of his body. This is a man who suffered much, and yet he felt that the Lord had delivered him from all of these things, and he is a man who is currently imprisoned. Now, whether this is a form of house arrest or whether this is in a different kind of prison is up for debate, but it is not up for debate that Paul was imprisoned during the time of this letter. Yet he felt rescued because to Paul, what you could see did not really represent reality. The spiritual things were real. The physical things were passing by. And therefore, he felt delivered because he was still faithful. He was still strong. And he was still optimistic about Christ and what Christ had done for him and would do for him, even if he died. It's it's an amazing attitude to have. It really is. And I'm not going to just tell you to snap your fingers and have that attitude. But it is rather instructive to read Paul's life and see what he went through and see how he closes out this book, which 
I believe reading between the lines here, he understood was probably going to be his last communication with Timothy. Well, he says something in verse 12 that is um, uncomfortable. And in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Everyone. Now, is he meaning to be all covering the globe with this? Or is he really talking about those who put themselves out there uh, to tell the good news, you know, to be the ministers, the pastors, the evangelists? Um, I don't really know. But I do know this, that if you are being a Christian, you are going to bother a lot of folk. Maybe not to the point of persecution, but maybe you will. And by the way, just because a bell ringer is saying happy holidays and not Merry Christmas is not persecution. You know, a store deciding they don't want a bell ringer in front of their, their store at all during Advent, that, that's not persecution. Persecution isn't a public school teaching your children things that you don't want them to know about or teaching them that what they are told at home is untrue. And met, you know, I don't know, countless parents have impoverished themselves sending their kids to universities only to find when they, uh, what they learn at university is that their parents are idiots. That's, um, that's pretty rough. And if you are a Christian in university and in certain of the sciences, but really anything, you're gonna find some persecution there. So sometimes when all hell breaks loose, it's because you're doing something right. Now, make sure it's not because you're a jerk. Make sure it's not because you're being sanctimonious. But just refusing to join in evil and acquiesce to the demands of evil is considered an attack by our culture. And they will go for you. Recently on Twitter, an, an actress who uh, had been on TV as a young girl and is now back, I guess, in Hallmark movies and such, had the temerity, had the unmitigated gall to say that traditional marriage was really the best and is best for, for communities and such and for the raising of children. And she has been relentlessly shelled on Twitter. Uh, she has been relentlessly shelled by talk shows. Yeah, it's gonna happen. Andrew Claven, uh, who had a thriving career writing Hollywood scripts and books uh, was, was absolutely sought after. When he really came to faith and decided his faith had to limit his, his interaction with some of these elements of the, uh, the media, that he could not write stories that attacked his own faith or that broke down things he believed in, was immediately kicked out of Hollywood. If you stand up and just say, I believe in Jesus, that's enough to get persecuted in many places. So be aware that some of the ministers you'll see on television and really, what, what are you doing? <laughs> if, you, if you watch them, it, it's all triumph and triumph and triumph and this is how we win our, our battles and it's all this celebration thing. Yeah, I need to remember, we have books in the Bible called Lamentations, Ecclesiastes. A third of the Psalms, more than a third, are laments. Jesus is a man of sorrows, well acquainted with our griefs. Our travel through this earthly realm 
will not be without some pretty hard bumps. When that happens, that is not a sign that God has deserted you. That is not a sign that God does not love you. Even if it's Christians hurting you, it may just be a sign that you're doing the right thing. Jesus didn't get through this life alive, and neither will we. Paul goes on. But uh, while evil men, you know, Christian, those who believe in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil men and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you've learned it, from how from infancy you've known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Now, we're good. We're tracking. We're tracking right now. Verse 16 is where some people go very far off the rails, and they use this as a proof text, sometimes what we call a clobber verse, to, uh, to you know, swing around the room to win their argument. All Scripture is God-breathed. All right. What's God-breathed? Well, the word is usually translated inspired, which really means to breathe into. People assume all scripture, that means the Bible. Not when Paul wrote this. Because when Paul wrote this, most of the New Testament was not gathered and much of it had not been written. He's talking about the Hebrew scriptures. But to us, in the order in which we place the, the books, Genesis through Malachi. Maybe he was also including some of the deuterocanonical books, such as um, you know, Judith or Tobit. He certainly knew those books. Uh, that there's no way he could have been a scholar without knowing those books. And they were tales that were very well known. Uh, these were written, <coughs> some of them perhaps, even in Egypt when the Jews were there for a long period of time, not during the plagues and Joseph time, but later between the time of Malachi and the time of the Maccabees, there were colonies in Egypt where they did quite a bit of writing, including the Septuagint, the most um, impressive and the, the most often quoted version of the Hebrew scriptures by Paul. I call them the Hebrew scriptures. I should probably call them, <coughs> excuse me, the Jewish scriptures because the Septuagint was in Greek. But when he says all scriptures, he's pointing back there. Does that mean he's saying that the New Testament isn't inspired? No, he didn't know what a New Testament was. There are indications that Paul knew he was writing scripture at times, but at other times he was making it plain. He says, I not the Lord say. And he allowed for some mystery and some movement there. So that's one. And then breathed in, inspired. And people assume that means, that means uh, uh, inerrant, zero errors in history, in numbers, mathematics, sociology, uh, zero uh, mistakes when it comes to science or the like, everything, as if this was written for us in 2022. Not by people with a limited worldview in a world in which you couldn't have any other kind of worldview. This, um, we're gonna need to be careful for God to breathe something into someone or, or something certainly indicates his engagement with it. But when we assume what that engagement means, we'd better have some solid things to back it up. 
when God breathed into Adam and he became a living soul, did that mean that Adam had no errors? We know that story. God is breathing through the scriptures. And if we read the scriptures, even with all the horrors in there and all the mistakes human beings made in the name of God, we can see that rolling story ending up at Jesus. And it's, he's saying, you read these, you know these. These are able to make you wise for salvation. It's God-breathed, it's useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Nowhere in those two verses that are almost always trotted out when someone wants to talk about the inerrancy of Scripture, does it say it's inerrant? It says it's useful. Other versions, profitable. No version says absolutely without error and completely dictated by God to willing secretaries. Yet that's the assumption people make and it has caused all kinds of harm. Let me give you an example of this. Do you like your Bible? I like my Bible. I'm, are you glad you can read a Bible whenever you want to? I'm thrilled. I really am. I love doing that. We even have Bible apps. I think my wife has, has set world records for reading the Bible consistently every day off of Bible apps, several chapters a day, and, and you know, I'm very proud of her. I love that. Did getting the Bible sort out our problems when it had been away from us until the moving, movable printing press, really, and in the 1400s, 1500s, and then even later, the 1600s, before it started getting into the hands of people? Until that time, the Catholic Church, whether Eastern or Roman, pretty much were the only guardians and keepers of the books that we, we would uh, eventually settle on and say this is the canon of Scripture. Um, so there was just a monolith. You know, in Europe, it would have been the Roman Catholic Church. In Eastern countries, the, the Orthodox churches are split into different groups, but you get the point. And so now we get the Bible so we can be united, right? Solo Scriptura, as, um, as Martin Luther would put it. Do you see what happened when we got the Bible? Instead of being united, the number of divisions in, Christian in Christianity exploded exponentially and still are. Why? Because people are reading it as if it was dictated by God to individuals. Therefore, they're looking for any hidden words they're looking for any new doctrine. They're looking for, and they're looking right past the love thing and the be like Jesus thing. And so when they read this scripture, these two verses, even though it doesn't say it, what they hear is God dictated this and there are no errors. God said it, I believe it, that settles it. Paul was a lot more nuanced than this in chapter two and in here, saying, learn how to use this rightly divided, handle it correctly, because it is useful. Isn't it amazing what the Bible says and what it doesn't? Moving on, chapter four, in the presence of God. Now, here we go, here we go. If you're wondering why he went personal there and so deeply so, well, here we go. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing in his kingdom, I give you this charge preach the word. Now, a couple things need to be said. First of all, this is a man 
again, nerve damage, joint damage, uh, skin diseases probably from the different jails and mistreatment that he's had in his life. And he is awaiting the death sentence to be carried out on him that Nero will carry out shortly. And here he's writing to the young man he loves so dearly and he says, do what I do. Even knowing it might put Timothy eventually in that same place, he says, no, this is worth it. Preach the word. And when he says preach the word, you know what people think? Preach this. But they don't even look to see what this says. What does it say? It says that Jesus is the word. Preach Jesus. The word, the, the, the truth, the life, the way. He is all of these things. And according to John chapter 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The same was in the beginning with him. Jesus is the word. Preach Jesus. And by the way, that wasn't a mystery to Timothy because they were already referring to Jesus as the word for some time. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. In other words, when it's popular and when it's not. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. There's a lot of rebuking that goes on with no patience and no instruction. Uh, basically, a straighten up and fly right, to use a military term out of World War II. Um, no, even when you rebuke, it has to be done with humility because you might be the one who's wrong and you are not God. So we do it with humility and we are to do it gently. Again, gentle rebuking. When we hear rebuke, we think of something way away from gentle, but Paul doesn't. It's to be done in love and gentleness with gentle instruction. Because we don't want to bruise or break a bruised reed, if you remember, or blow out a smoldering wick. We want to be very careful with people. People are covered with bruises. People are hurting. We have no idea what that person across from you is going through. None. You should treat them as if they're having a horribly hard day because the odds are they are. Everybody you know is having a bad day at some level. Everybody you know is carrying baggage. They've got scars. So we are gentle. He goes, for the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. And again, today that phrase has been warped to mean everything my church says is sound doctrine. When sound doctrine has already been laid out by him, when he said, remember Jesus Christ, remember him resurrected, remember he was from the seed of David, this is my gospel. That's our doctrine. That's our teaching. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. And you, there's no better time in history for this to be true because of all the thousands of podcasts out there, millions, I, you get to pick the ones you like that you agree with. It's always helpful to me to read a book that I don't agree with the author and to listen to a podcast where I don't agree with the person because who knows, they might come up with some ideas. I read atheist uh, publications. I want to see what they're saying. Who knows, they might, they might have something there that I needed to think about. So don't, don't be an itchy ear searching out person to scratch them person. All right. 
They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths, but you keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry, for I am already being poured out like a drink offering and the time has come for my departure. Wow. So, buddy, you need to do this. Son, you need to do this, even though it is leading right now to my departure, my death. That time has come. Do the work of an evangelist. I really wish we'd never come up with the word evangelist. We made it out of uh, Greek via Latin. It really just means the one who tells the good news. And by now, the word evangelist can take this, mean a pushy church person. I wish it didn't. But then again, I wish the word church wasn't used for buildings. And evidently my wishes are not changing the trajectory of the universe. Who'd have thunk? But Paul here says, I'm ready to be poured out like a drink offering. I'm ready to be killed for Jesus. It didn't bother him. He had faith. And it's stunning faith. But aren't you glad he had it? And then he says this, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I've kept the faith. Now that's the NIV. The more common translation says, I fought the good fight, I have finished my course. And the NIV had a decision to make because there are manuscripts that read both ways. Uh, and they, they went with this one. I kind of like the I finished my course thing here because my course is not going to be the same as yours. Paul didn't finish Peter's course or John's course or Elijah's course or whatever. We're all individuals and our work is going to look individual. It's going to be the things we're able to do with what we have, where we are with the people and the, um, the supplies around us and with the potential of the moment. And so it's going to look different. I know people who, for example, they give all of their life to feeding the poor and they think everybody else should give all their life to feeding the poor. Well, what about visiting prisons? What about helping the sick? What about telling people about the Jesus story? You see, there are all of these different uh, things that we do for the kingdom. And my course may not be your course. I've even seen churches uh, get really angry because part of them wants to do mission work in India and the other part wants to do work in, I don't know, Germany or, or, or England. And they get angry at each other because they want everybody to have exactly the same passion they do about the thing they do. No. You do your work. You do your work. The work you have a passion for and the ability and the talent and the, the moment at hand. You do your work and let others do theirs. Finish your course. I, it is far too late for me to live my life to be the best Patrick I could ever be, but I'm trying to be the best Patrick I could be now. Maybe that'll help you some too. And then he talks about, now there's in store for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have obeyed everything I've listed and is in scripture with precision obedience. Uh, it doesn't say that. It doesn't. 
the crown is coming to all who have longed for his appearing. Um, you have a feeling we've been a little negative and narrow about the grace of Jesus? I believe we have. Well, he closes this with some personal remarks, and some of them are meaningful to us. Most of them I'm just going to zip right through. Do your best to come to me quickly, for Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you because he is helpful to me in my ministry. I sent Tychicus to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas and my scrolls, especially the parchments. And you're getting a, and this is kind of tender. It's kind of a special holy place. He really wants Timothy to come to him, but we don't think Timothy made it in time. He has people that have gone elsewhere uh, to do the work like Titus and Christians, but he also has had people like Demas who just deserted him and left him. By the way, before you get too real mean on Demas, and he deserves people being mean on, I'll, I'll grant you that. Please remember that even visiting somebody that was under suspicion, much less being pr imprisoned, got you on the Romans list. They made a note. So it could be he had a family and he was frightened. But there were others who seemed to do so intentionally, caused, cause him pain and, and imprisonment and punishment on purpose. Read Philippians chapter one. We did that earlier. He says here, Alexander, the metal worker, did me a great deal of harm. The Lord will repay him for what he has done. You too should be on your guard against him because he strongly opposed our message. I don't know who he is. I don't know what he did, but I do know it, I would have, I would listen to that warning, wouldn't you? He said, he's done great damage to our message. What message? Remember Jesus Christ, crucified, raised again of the seed of David. Love God, love each other. The only thing that matters, as Paul himself said, is faith expressing itself in love. And a crown of righteousness goes to all of those who long for his appearance. Isn't it a crying shame that we take scriptures out of Paul and use them to beat up other people and beat up ourselves and declare that these are laws necessary for our obedience in a precise way when that's not what he was saying, ever. At my first defense, he writes in verse 16, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. Wow. Wow. It's heartbreaking, but you know what his next line is? May it not be held against them. I think we could learn something about graciousness, forgiveness, and uh, offering people love instead of revenge fantasies, don't you? He goes on, but the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength so that through me, the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. And I was delivered from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Did you notice that to him rescue wasn't necessarily, or at all in this situation, released from prison and made comfortable? 
To him, deliverance meant from this world into the next and safely so. <clears throat> wow. He closes, greet Priscilla and Aquila. Stop right there. Who you mention first in a sentence or a list is hugely important in the first century and for a couple centuries either side. We know this for movie posters. Before <coughs> an actor will agree to do a, a movie, they negotiate how big their name is on the poster and in advertisements and how upfront their name is compared to the others. When we first meet Aquila and Priscilla, we meet Aquila and Priscilla, the husband and the wife, but very shortly thereafter, it is always Priscilla and Aquila. It is said that she was an amazing teacher and that she taught ministers and that she taught others. And so Paul mentions her before her husband. That was not a slight, that was just an indication of the status she had within the church. And the house of Onesphorus, Erastus stayed in Corinth and I left Trophimus sick in Miletus. Do your best to get here before winter. Oh my goodness, winter in a prison? Can you imagine? They had no heating, there was no fire for them. And he's already asked for the cloak and for some parchments. He's lonely, he's ill-equipped, he's cold. Eubulus greets you, and so do Pudens, Linus, Claudia, and all the brothers. The Lord be with your spirit, grace be with you. You know what stuns me as we close out this book and our time with this book? It stuns me how few complaints Paul had. He mentions when people desert him. He mentions when people do him harm, but then he just kind of shoves that off, says, just don't be involved with them and may it not be held against them. I want to learn that from Paul, truly. I want to learn how to live life with fewer complaints, even when those complaints are justified. You wanna join me in that? Let's work on that. I don't really do New Year's resolutions, but why not? Let's give it a go. Thanks for tuning in. Next week, are you ready? We could go to Hebrews, one of my favorite books, period. We could go to Jude, First and Second Peter, we can go to a lot of them. We're going to go to First Peter. See you then. Bye.